All right, so I've been considering what to do for Christmas and might do a couple messages prior to Christmas. Um, I was even considering doing this morning and I started studying something for it. But uh, to my wife's joy, because she was happy being in Genesis, we are still in Genesis this morning. And uh, I was considering the miracles of Christmas, and I think it, we might see a miracle this morning because we're going to cover two chapters. So that could be an absolute miracle to get it done. So I'm noting the time and after. Uh, but we're going to look at Genesis chapters 10 and 11 this morning. Um, and the title of this morning's message is going to be, Come, Let Us. Come, Let Us. And that's, that's the difference, is that... Uh, uh, We've been talking about things that God does and things that man do, do and kind of titling a message one way or the other. And this morning we're going to see that both man and God have the same words, to come, let us. But we're going to see that there's drastically different outcomes between when man says, come, let us do a thing, and when God says, come, let us do a thing. Uh, but this morning, uh, as we'll see, uh, actually to catch up rather, the flood is over. We saw that the earth is being repopulated by Noah and his family. And again, we're going to see Genesis segue with the genealogy. We saw that after Adam, that they segued into the genealogy, and then they got into Noah. And this morning, we're going to see those uh, genealogies again. Um, they go from the days of Noah, ultimately, to the days of Abram, who would become Abraham. Uh, but I believe that God is really focused on getting the story of the Israelites out, because the story of the Israelites ultimately becomes a story of the Messiah, which ultimately is the story of our redemption. That God needs to tell these other stories to lay the groundwork, and they're important for us to know, to get his heart and his character, and to really see how man is. Uh, there's something <laughs> going on back there. Uh, but God is focused on getting to that story, because that's the ultimate story that he wants to tell. That's the ultimate information that we need to see, that, yeah, you can break down Genesis in the beginning and creation into different science facts and, and areas of study, but ultimately God wants us to know that we're saved that we're redeemed, and that ultimately he loves us. Um, that's the most important thing that we would know. Uh, but mixed in these two chapters of genealogies are some interesting footnotes and set pieces. We're going to look at a couple characters uh, this morning and really see that in the middle of these long lists, God gives a, a sentence or two for one guy and a little bit longer for another guy, and uh, they're quite interesting. You know, when, when God takes you aside and begins to show something in Scripture, uh, even if it's short, we should still pay attention to it. And I think that these few verses, they not only say a lot and a little, but they also have implications, not only personally, but prophetically, uh, for all of history. Uh, but with genealogies, we think of DNA or ancestry, you know, the, those websites that you can like, submit your saliva to and you get you know, your history. Um, apparently, I saw a headline the other day that uh, police can get that information from them without a warrant or something like that. There was something very kind of shady going on there. Uh, but really, what part does DNA and ancestry play in our lives? Um, maybe there's genetic uh, dispositions or something. Maybe you've got a genetic thing that goes in your history and it comes out in your life, whether it's your blonde, brunette, redhead, or maybe it's some deformity, or maybe it means you're tall or short, as we looked at in other things. Uh, maybe it's also uh, in your abilities. Um, Maybe it's athletic abilities or artistic abilities, uh, or maybe it's land rights. Uh, you know, when Israel uh, became a nation again in order to be a citizen there, uh, they had to know your ancestry. Uh, I was at the pastor's conference, and someone was speaking how they were moving back to Israel, and they had to prove that they were Jewish somehow. 
uh, in order to get the citizenship if they weren't. Um, and that was kind of interesting. You know, I couldn't go become uh, an Israeli citizen because I'm not Jewish. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how that works otherwise if I lived there for some amount of time, but whatever it was, he was going for dual citizenship. Uh, but in my family, there were, uh, my mom's side, there was blacksmiths, there was artists, there was craftsmen. On my dad's side, there was law enforcement, there was military, there was salesmen. And I can see some of those traits in my life uh, just carried down. I'm sure we could do the same thing there. Uh, but today, we're going to see what happens, uh, what becomes of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, if we remember last week, Ham was cursed because of what he did to his father, um, of the shaming of his father. And I don't want you to get the idea that there's a curse on your family. There are errant doctrines that go around that say, you've got a curse, and you've got to break this curse, and all these things, uh, because the blood of Jesus stops that. And Jesus, didn't, God himself in Exodus talks about that, hey, you know, if, if you just turn to me, all these things don't matter anymore. They're all wiped out by the blood of Jesus, because it doesn't matter what's in our bloodline physically. It matters if we have the blood of Jesus in our life, because um, it's been wiped out there. You remember, even Rahab, this, uh, the prostitute, in uh, Jericho, she knew that God was real. She didn't know God, but she saw God working in the Israelites. She knew that he was a real God, and she wanted to put her trust in him. She knew that judgment was coming on her people because of their ways, and their God was going to uh, deliver, the, uh, deliver the city over to the Israelites. Um, and so she turned to God, and she was saved. And she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus, this woman who's not Israeli, who's not Jewish, who is, quite frankly, just messed up, and she gets in there, and I think that that's hope for all of us, that God says, your genealogy is not the end all, you know, you're Irish, it doesn't mean you need to be an alcoholic, you're Italian, it doesn't need to be, you're in the mob, or whatever, I don't know, but these things aren't what truly defines us, um, and I can see how without the Lord, we'd want these things to define us, um, as far as our heritage, but they're not the end all, be all, when we're uh, believers, but let's uh, pick it up in chapter 10. And uh, let's see what we have here. Uh, God, would you just speak again in your word and use it to minister to us even in the genealogy, we pray. We know you have that power. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 10, we'll read the first five verses. It says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, uh, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and uh, Tiras, you know, uh, don't take my pronunciations as the end all be all here. Just ask Mario, I can't even say his name right. <laughs> <laughs> but the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tugarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, uh, I like to call Elisha that sometimes, uh, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Uh, take that, Star Wars names, these are even cooler. But from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated unto their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families into their nations. Uh, we see here Magog uh, shows up in Ezekiel as well. They are the people that are aligned with Satan in the end times. Uh, apparently, uh, from some research, you know, a quick look at this, it says, uh, the first century, these people are identified as the Scythians. Uh, apparently, by legend or by fact, Alexander Wall behind Iron Gates in the Caucasus Mountains. So these people were uh, uh, prominent later on. But it says that they dwelled in isles or in dry land, uh, coastland or island. It's interesting that we already see people being separated by land, language, and uh, the people group, their tribe or their family. Again, you know, I see that the Bible is telling the genealogy is a bit zoomed out. It shows a longer history than we're going to look at here. It shows um, 
sort of unfolded all these families as they carry out over time. Uh, but it's also showing divisions that, that occur, as we'll see a little bit later in, in more detail. But these families begin to spread. Noah has children, they have families, they have families, you've got nothing else to do, so you're just going to have kids and kids and kids. You know, it's a little healthier, everything's organic. People begin to spread out and take the land. There's no real estate agent. You know, when we go looking for apartments or houses, you always have to look through a real estate agent, uh, unless you're brave and go on Craigslist like we do, because we're cheap and don't want to pay the fee. But there was no realtor fee. They could go out and say, oh, I like that land. I'm going to wall it off and keep it for myself. And I kind of like that idea. No fee. <laughs> no fee there. Because, man, paying you for what? But uh, in any event, uh, we see the Europeans, the Russians, the Medes, or uh, people from Iran and Iraq, uh, India, the Fertile Crescent, uh, the Armenians, Gomer uh, could be the Germans, Meshach and Tubal becomes Russia, the Moscovites and the Tubalists, different parts of Russia. Um, if you go on blueletterbible.org uh, and click on these verses and click on commentaries and then click on David Guzik's text commentary, he breaks down what each of these people become. I think it's a very interesting resource to see where that comes up to. Um, and I think overall David Guzik's commentary is uh, fantastic. Um, I try not to look there first because then it like ruins me. <laughs> but uh, let's go on, 6 through 20. It says, The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, Sapteca, and the sons of Rama were Sheba, Dedan. Uh, I won't look here if we ever have kids for more names, I guess. But Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim. Uh, I think they were just making stuff up at this point. But Pathrusim and Kalshuhim, from whom came the Philistines, and Kephordim. We've already heard some names I'm sure we're familiar with later on in Scripture. Uh, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Arachite, the Sinite, the Ardivite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as toward, you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebuim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages and their lands and their nations. We see now the sons of Ham. And a lot of these names we hear in the Bible later on, Sodom, Gomorrah, uh, Nineveh, Babylon, you know, we, all these things that we hear, these aren't the good ones. <laughs> these aren't the nations that you really want to be like, the Philistines. You know, you don't want to be like uh, these guys that come and go. Uh, but the sons of Ham, they go to Africa, they go to the Far East, Cush, uh, divided, into two early, divided early into two, went off to Babylon, and Ethiopia, two major powers of the ancient world. Ethiopia, um, uh, what was, was, what was the uh, queen of, who was the queen that went to visit Solomon? Wasn't, I think she was from Ethiopia, but we see Ethiopia was a powerful kingdom back then uh, throughout history. It's not Ethiopia like we think of today as a third world country. Uh, Babylon was powerful, took over the whole region, Babylonian Empire. And even Mizraim uh, was Egypt. And they were, obviously, we know they were a powerful force in history. So through this guy, him, come all these major powerful nations. This guy that was rebellious, that was cursed, so to speak, against his family. Uh, you see a lot of powerful nations that are really godless nations. Uh, but this guy, Nimrod, 
His name means rebellious or the valiant. I guess it really depends on how you look at him, if he's rebellious or valiant. You know, if you compare him to a man of God, he's pretty rebellious. But if you look at him in the world's eyes, he's pretty valiant. He was a warrior. He went out and he started all these cities and started a kingdom. You know, he was like the founding father of uh, Babylon, so to speak, uh, that he was looked up to. Um, he was the son of Cush. He was the grandson of Ham, the great-grandson of Noah. So, again, only three or four generations separated uh, apart there. And we already get this guy that's out and doing uh, these things against God. Uh, but he had founded Babylon and Assyria. This was a, a giant kingdom. But I think, in a way, he was really the first antichrist. If we look throughout history, we see all these powerful leaders that the, the enemy tries to raise up to take the place of Jesus in the world. And we see even in uh, the New Testament scriptures, John says, the spirit of the antichrist is already in the world. In the last days, many antichrists will come, and then the final one. Uh, that there are people like Hitler who is, he wasn't the Antichrist, he's not the final form, but think about this guy who raises up and, and wants to kill the Jewish people and wants to rule the world. That's the spirit of Satan in this person, and we see that going on here as well. Uh, whether he was possessed or not, it's a different story, but it, his desires were strictly motivated by the flesh and by uh, evil. But he was a mighty, mighty hunter before the Lord. And that saying is not that he was really good at hunting deer or antelope or whatever roams over there, but that he was a warrior. That he went out and he hunted man, he hunted land, he hunted power, and it was before God. It wasn't saying that he was doing it for God, but it was it, God could see it, almost in the sense of uh, where we see later in Scripture where the enemy goes up and goes before God and then he comes down with Job. You know, that God is aware of these things that are going on in the, with this man on the earth. And, I think it's, it's important to note that when these rulers do rise up, uh, like it says in Proverbs, uh, or Proverbs of Ecclesiastes, it talks about rulers rising up and wickedness is done in the land, you know, uh, know that God sees. Know that God knows these things are going on. And it may, it may look like God is inactive in the situation, but he's not. He's fully aware of what's going on. Um, but he was against God. He was against God. He was not about godly things. And, and I wonder... I ask, and it's pretty obvious to think, but how many powerful people in our world today are against God and are against godly things? And they have great worldly power. They rule nations. They rule companies. They have billions and billions and billions of dollars. Like Jeff Bezos just announced the first $100 billionaire or whatever, $100 billion man or whatever. Not for God. For Washington Post. For other things. It's, it's a different time we live in. It's the same time, but it's a different time. And I'd say even a majority of the world's leaders today, even our own country, I think a lot of times people of faith don't rise to such high ranks of power because we're not seeking worldly fame. We're not seeking worldly power. I mean, I'm thankful we have guys like Mike Pence in office from all understanding he's a believer. I don't know him personally. I can't speak to him personally, but at least it seems that he knows God. Things that go on the White House now, they have Bible studies now, they have prayer meetings now, like they haven't had in years. And whether they really have a relationship with God or not, I don't know. God knows that. But to know that at least that in some vein in America there are still people in power who seek God and want to know God, even on a surface level, that's comforting. That's comforting. I mean, without it, I, don't, I wouldn't see Hillary getting in and having a Bible study or having those things. I, she may go to church occasionally, but I think it's only once expedient for her. You know, I think even uh, president, the president who's open to the gospel and wants to defend life and Christians and wants, you know, wants to make sure Christians aren't persecuted in America for not wanting to bake a cake. That says a lot. Whether he's a Christian or not, I think is 
probably here to there, but God's using him. God's using him for good and not allowing him to you know, run amok like a Nimrod. Even though others might call him a Nimrod, I don't see him as a Nimrod. You know, a large portion of Christians did support the current administration, and what were the supporters of this administration called? Deplorables. So I think that tells you the state of the world and what they view Christianity. People are refugees all over the world, but no one cares when Christians are persecuted. But it's interesting that, in fact, the Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. It means instead of. So you think of Nimrod being before Christ, uh, a mighty hunter before God. He was trying to come in the place of God before God came. And again, I think that sounds a lot like the work of the enemy already, trying to do what God does in an impatient way without God. Um, you know, he founded all these cities of the empire. Later, obviously, we know what happens to Babylon, uh, and later to Nineveh and Jonah. But again, people were supposed to spread out. God said people to spread out across the whole world, not to form these central empires. And again, not there's anything wrong with being in a city or living in a country that has a government, so to speak. There's, you know, government's a good thing. Romans says that government is instituted by God, and God allows people to be in those offices to execute godly judgment. Whether they do it right or wrong is, is, is not God's fault, but they are there for a godly purpose. Um, but again, when you look at it, people in the city tend to be focused on man's power. When you go to New York City in Times Square at night, it's so bright. It's like you're indoors, but you're outdoors. There's all these tall buildings. You don't really think about God too much. You think about the commercial over there. You think about how rich these people must be to have this building or how amazing it is that we put all these things together and have this uh, city. But when you go out in the country, you begin to see, wow, this is big. You know, I was out in Montana. This is the biggest thing I've ever seen, and I didn't see much of it at all. And it was huge. I was like, wow, these are mountains. What we had back home, <laughs> that's not a mountain. These are mountains. It was different. You know, it's, it's, we have godless society in the city and, and God-fearing society in the country. Again, whether it's a name or not, it's not really the point I'm trying to make, but that I think sometimes when we gather together, we tend to look at each other instead of uh, looking to God. But also from these people, we get the Lebanese, the Sidonese, and also the Asian nations. You know, that uh, there's a different things. You know, again, just to touch on the, the God-fearing and non-God-fearing, if you look at the political maps of red states versus blue states, it's pretty evident. You know, I see all the major cities are all very liberal, but all the uh, rural areas are more conservative. Well, let's go on, uh, 21 through uh, 32. It says, And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Ephraxad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, Mash, Ephraxad begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Essentially, this guy Peleg gets a sentence, in it, and everybody else doesn't. Joktan begot Almudad, Shelef, Hazavarmeth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dekiah, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Jobab, I think he lives in the south. But And their dwelling place was from Misha as you go toward Sephar, the mountain of the east. Uh, that was supposed to be a joke. But these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, to their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to generations and the nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So we see that God's people, well, the, sorry, the Noah's children begin to spread out, and they spread out in a different direction here. Um, 
But we see this name, Uz. And we know that Abraham left Uz. I'm sure we've all heard Abraham of Uz or the Chaldeans. That's who these people were. That's who this family was. That's where this region was. Um, but it's interesting, this guy Peleg, out of all these names, Peleg gets a sentence associated to him. And it's interesting because his name means division. His name means division. And in this genealogy, this guy with the name division gets something interesting called out. It says, in Peleg's days, in division's days, the earth was divided. And the word divided is Pelag. So his name is almost like, it's either a different form of the word, uh, present past tense, I don't know, but maybe it's just a play on the word. Um, but the word Pelag means a split, be divided, or cleaved. And I think that could say a lot. It could be that major... Uh, Maybe there was warring going on. Maybe nations began to spread out and really say, where are this people and where are this people and where are this people? Um, could it speak of a larger upheaval? Um, I think so. Um, you know, I personally believe that during the flood is when, if there was ever a continental shift, I, I don't, you know, I know that there's subduction zones and abduction zones and the continents do shift about an inch or whatever it is over a time period. Um, and given on how old you think Earth is, granted, perhaps they could go back to be one thing, but then... You really have to make a lot of concessions to make the stuff fit. And so I don't know that I totally believe that, what we're pitched in school about one continent beforehand. But if there was, I believe that it was before the flood and during the flood when all the fountains broke open and all these things happened that obviously you're going to get a lot of movement. You take a lot of water under the earth, put it on top of the earth, stuff's not going to be in the same place anymore. It's going to be different. You take a lot of water in the atmosphere, put it down. Even if nothing moved on the ground, you're still going to have high places and low places that are different. But if something else happened, if there was a divide here, this would have happened during his time. You know, you think about people spreading out after the floodwaters have received. Yeah, there's no flood, but there's lakes, there's, there's oceans, there's seas. Maybe these began to change and people would get cut off. You think of if it happened that people came over that land bridge to Alaska and to America, as they say they did. Um, although if you, I've been reading news stories lately, they start finding different skulls and different human bones in different places. And now they're like, oh, our model of everyone coming out of Africa is not right. Well, no kidding, I could have told you that. But they're starting to see that the things that they believe um, aren't necessarily there. But if that happened, perhaps people came over. And in the days of Peleg is when the land bridge went away. You know, you could kind of consider these things as food for thought. Again, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. All I know is that we're here. <laughs> this is where we're at and what the Bible says. And uh, There was a quote the other day. I sent that quote to you? Uh, I did send it to you. I want to read it because I didn't put it in my notes. See if I can figure out how to look at this. Uh, okay, it's from uh, A.W. To oh, from R.A. Torrey. It says, The truly wise man is he who believes the Bible against the opinions of any man. So I don't care what the opinions of man are. I know what the Bible says. And if they're in conflict, well, maybe I don't understand what the Bible's saying, but it doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. Maybe you don't understand what you're saying. But from these, the nations were divided on the earth. Again, we see a general spreading out of people across the earth. But again, as God intended, God wanted them to fill the earth, and people are filling the earth, and everyone wants their own piece of the pie. And I think naturally, if you own this land, I'm going to keep going so I can find land that, that I own. Uh, sort of what happened when people fled persecution in Europe, they came to America. And right, you know, right or wrong, I'm not saying it was, you know, you think about taking the land from the Native Americans and things of that nature. I don't want to get into that, that debate because that's definitely a thing. But from there, we're going out and taking land. People are moving west, homesteading. Uh, because it's, I think it's naturally in us to want to own a little piece of land, to have 
a little space to call home and to call ours. And uh, again, I just I think it's a little weird to just want to like live in a little apartment building on top of other people and next to other people. And not there's anything really wrong with it, I guess. You know, especially in Christ, if that's where God calls you. But I think there's just the desires are different there when when that's what you're desiring instead of uh, a different existence. But I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill there. But again, they spread and they fill the earth. And we're not overpopulated. We're not overpopulated. That's the whole leftist thinking, the whole thinking among intellectuals of state is that we're overpopulated. We need to reduce the population of the earth. The earth can't sustain this. There'll only be a few select people. Um, and we're going to have this utopia. And that's really a life and enemy. God made the earth. He designed the earth. He knew how many people were going to be here. Not overpopulated. Anyone, I mean, we've talked about it before. I think if you go out and look around, there's plenty of room. You know, there's room for houses over there. They're always finding room for more houses. It just is what it is. But I think, again, that's uh, a real picture of the spirit of the Antichrist there that people are bad. We only need a few people and we don't need God. Let's go on. Let's go on into chapter 11. Otherwise, we'll never get through. Uh, this and we'll never see a miracle in our day. Uh, <laughs> uh, first nine verses says, Now the whole earth had been one language and one speech. It's interesting. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there, Shinar being Iraq and Iran in that region. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, uh, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. That the whole earth, excuse me, the whole earth had one language and one speech. The word language, uh, shafa, it's language. Interesting, it can also mean border, uh, it can mean speech. It can also mean the lip of the mouth. It's interesting that the word language, in a sense, is you know, maybe I don't know what the word was before then, but when you think of language, it's almost saying that I have one language and you have another language, and it's the language of your tongue and the language of your mouth, but it also puts a border up, that this word is also for a border, that when there's a different language, there's immediately a border that's put up, a wall that's put up, because you can't communicate, you can't share what's going on, you have to kind of point and figure out, oh, you know, if I say ceiling, you know, am I pointing to the ceiling, am I saying the color, am I saying the light? You know, we have to find a common ground to break down uh, these walls and these barriers uh, between us. Matthew 15, 17 through 20, Jesus says, Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands is not defile a man. That even our language, what comes out of our mouth, can defile us because it's uh, representative or really it's a uh, fruit of what's in our heart. Um, and language is very powerful. You know, that sticks and stones may break through my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, I think words hurt more, especially in these days of the internet, of things when people 
get bullied online and somehow the words are more powerful than a bully who might just beat them up and take their lunch money. Words go in deep. You know, uh, uh, someone comments on something you do on the internet and you don't even know them and they say something cruel and it can stick in you, it can dig in you. It's just words. They have power. But the mouth is a border, the language is a border. Uh, it's interesting that today we're all working on having one language. I would, I would argue that English is probably the one world language at this point. It's in aviation and in maritime activities. When they talk, they, they all have to speak English. But there's programs out there that can translate, uh, like Google Translate or another one called Babelfish, which I think is interesting because we see Babel. And fish was Dagon, the god of the, the Babylonians, the Ninevites, as we see in Jonah. Babelfish, it's interesting that they're like, there's no bones about it, what they're trying to do here. Um, but even now, where they have, I think Skype is working on it, where you can talk to someone in your language, the app translates it in real time, and speaks it to the other person on the other end. So obviously there's a little delay, but think, you know, like in the United Nations, when they have their headphone on, they don't need someone else to translate it. You call someone on Skype in South America, and they can speak to you in their tongue, and you speak to them in their tongue. Um, I was at a wedding recently, and... Uh, uh, the bride was Portuguese, and we were talking to, talking to our friends who, the first time they talked to her, they heard the accent, and they didn't realize that she was Portuguese. They just thought she had a, a Hispanic accent, so they started talking Spanish to her, and then she said, oh, no, no, no. And she felt so bad. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, because there's a difference between Spanish and Portuguese. They may sound alike, but even though they're right next to each other, there's a border there between Spain and Portugal, and it's a different language. They're similar roots, but it's a different language. Um, but this land, Shinar, uh, was a land of two rivers. We see Babylonia and Chaldea. We have the Tigris and Euphrates that lived there. That this land was the Fertile Crescent in history. This is where it was the cradle of civilization. And really it was. This is where the first major civilizations come about. And we see that here. Uh, but what do they say? What does man say when man gets together? Man finds a nice plain to live in, a nice place to live. Come, let us. Let us do something together. Let us do something great. Let's start and make bricks. You know, there's plenty of dirt in this region. If you looked over there, lots of dirt, plenty of room to make bricks um, and mortar. They have their technology to build a city. Uh, they weren't dwelling in caves. They weren't like the three little pigs building a house out of stick and straw. They were the third pig, the smartest pig who built this out out of uh, brick. But they, they had their technology and they worked together and had this technology to build uh, a civilization together. But what do they say? Let us build a city whose top is in the heavens. Let's build a city so great that it goes all the way up to the sky, goes all the way up to outer space, goes all the way up even, indeed, to the throne of God. It's interesting, too, that now that we're looking back at going to the moon, there's already organizations that want to go and build this temple to humanity on the moon. Like, there's nothing new under the sun, guys. They were saying that here. Let's build a city all the way up. Well, we can get to the moon. Let's build a city on the moon. This place of worship, this place of uh, glory, this place of showing off their power, their prestige and wealth. And even seeing cities today, it's all about building the biggest building. You know, even with the, the president getting his name, the biggest name on the side of the building, building the largest tower. We see the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, uh, the United Arab Emirates. It's, it's the world's tallest building currently. It's 2,717 feet tall. That is over half a mile tall. They said... All right, America, we're sick of you guys having a large building. We're sick of you guys in the, I guess it's the Philippines. There's a double tower that's pretty tall, right? And they're like, no, 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 we're the most powerful now. We're going to build the tallest building. 
Um, even the World Trade Center used to be uh, two of the tallest buildings on Earth before they came down. Uh, and we built another taller tower there, 1,776 feet tall, plus the antenna. It's all about who's got the biggest building. You know, it's this whole like pride issue of who's got a taller building, who's got something more shiny and more powerful. And, and that's really the heart of man. Let's just show off. And, and man, let that not be the church to say, look at how big our steeple is. Look at how many pews we have. Look at how much gold is over here. You know, you go down to uh, down by D.C. and there's that Mormon temple and it's like this giant thing with this giant spire and this giant golden angel with a demon on top. You know, like, how many times does that thing get struck by lightning? And can I sneak up there and melt it? How much would that be worth? You know, like, <laughs> you know, that they have all this thing to come and show how great we are. And God says, I'm not about that. And I think, you know, not, nothing against the old cathedrals of the old days. I think they're beautiful and I think in some sense, building something to glorify God, like the temple and the Jewish people that had, where they had three temples and one of Solomon was very glorious. But there's something to be said for that, to do something for God with glory and to use all your skill and all your talent to make something as beautiful as you can for God. But it's different when you try and do it, when it becomes a motivation to lift yourself up. And I think it's interesting how God has done a work uh, in the past half century through church movements like Calvary and others, where it's you know, in a warehouse, or it's in a place that generally doesn't get much glory, but God says, I'm there. I'm not in that big cathedral. I'm in, um, you know, the coffee shop, so to speak. But this word heaven obviously means sky, stars, but also really the abode of God, that it was a worship place, a place for them to worship. We see the pyramids in Egypt, uh, the pharaohs, it was a place of worship, but it was really a place for them to be immortal, that they were locked away with possessions, with jars, their body was preserved because they thought they needed it, that they were going to live there for eternity. Uh, we see the ziggurats in the Middle East. Uh, we see uh, even then in the sense of uh, South America, where uh, the, I forget, the, was the Mayans, the Incans and Mayans, I don't remember which one had them, but they had these large cities and they would go up to the top and they would do human sacrifice. They, they would sacrifice their gods. The closer they could get to heaven was where they would sacrifice. But these people here, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And it's interesting that the word name, again, is Shem. Remember Noah's son, was Shem. He had a name, right? That they wanted a reputation, fame, glory. This word name means a designation of God, even. Or the name could be a memorial or a monument. And it's interesting to me that the cursed family tree wanted to make a name for themselves when their brother Shem had a name in his name just because he knew God. We saw last time, he was God, the God of Shem, right? He knew God, and God was the only name that he cared about. And God used Shem, and God blessed Shem. While the other brother was all about himself, and all about uh, making a name for himself, putting his dad down to bring himself up. And uh, we see that here. That people wanted a reputation. They wanted to be like God. Who does that sound like? They wanted to become gods on the earth. We think about humanism where people have evolved and we keep getting better and better and better. And we talk about evolution, and if civilization came from Africa, well, isn't that kind of degrading? Wouldn't that offend? If I was from Africa, I'd be a little offended by that to say that that's, well, then what does that mean? That my civilization is not as good as yours? And You know what I mean? I would, I, would, I would be triggered like a snowflake over that. But we see humanism, where people are then, we call the shots. We make up morals. I can be this. I can be that because I'm God. There's no one else to tell me what's right and wrong. We see people today building artificial intelligence. And again, I don't there's anything wrong with artificial intelligence in and of itself. I think it's pretty smart to make a robot to do the work for you. I mean, that's, isn't that the greatest thing? You know, the remote control. I don't have to get up and change the TV. 
oh, now I can just talk to the TV. Oh, now the TV just tells me what I want to watch. You know, it's like, at some point, you don't have to do anything. You can just be lazy and sit back on your throne like a god, right? Um, and just have your, your doings be bid. But they're building this AI, and there's people that are worried that it's going to take over the world. There's other people that are glad it's going to take over the world. Even an ex-member uh, of Google is out, and they literally filed for a 501c3 for an organization of a church, the first church of AI, trying to get people on board with AI and help people transition into the next section of history as they see it, where artificial intelligence and robots have rights and robots are in control of things. I mean, if I was a stockbroker and I had an artificial intelligence to tell me to look at the stocks and be super intelligent and tell me what to buy, I'd want that. If I was a world leader who had a really smart computer who could look at all the metadata that the NSA's been collecting and tell me who's going to commit a terrorist attack or who's going to spit out fake news against my political campaign and I can shut them up before they start, wouldn't I want that if I'm seeking power for myself? I mean, think about AI and the beast in the end times. It makes sense. It makes sense. I'm not saying what it would be or how it would be or what it's going to look like. I know there's going to be spiritual forms of that. But think about the Antichrist. You're not going to be able to buy or sell without a mark on your hand or forehead. Well, how are they going to do that? Probably with a computer system. I mean, I don't know what's to come. I mean, they couldn't imagine that then. I don't imagine what's going to be 100 years from now. But think about that. Think about even Nebuchadnezzar building a statue to himself and everyone has to bow down and worship it. What are we doing? We're building a statue to ourselves. An artificial intelligence that looks like us, that acts like us, but is perfect. It's gold, it's shiny, it's powerful, and we must all bow down and worship it. And again, I'm not saying that's the final form, but it's interesting to see how the world is still doing the same old thing, just in a different wrapper, and how it's all coming up to the end. We're building this tower of our society, of this world, for a utopia. But they also want to build themselves a memorial, a monument. You look at dictatorships like Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il, we see guys in South America. What do they do? They put their big old painting of themselves wherever they can, their face on everything, that people might know who's in charge. And even in uh, North Korea, they worship the, that family as if they're God. It's pretty scary. And I don't know if you saw that video this week of the guy running over the border being shot at because he's like, I need to get out of here. This is, this is bad. It says, why did they do this? What was their motivation? It was fear. It was lest we be scattered. I'm sure there's more complicated factors in there. But they did not want to be scattered. They feared being separated. They feared being apart from each other. They feared being spread out. They feared being not as powerful anymore. They figured, I think, we're not together. We're not going to be as powerful. We're not going to be in charge. We're not going to have national security. They feared not having a ruler over them. Even we see Israel later on doesn't want God anymore, so they say we want a ruler of us, and that's what they want here. Because they didn't fear God. They feared the world that God had given to them that was rightfully supposed to be theirs, but they feared it. They didn't want to inherit it. They didn't want to go out. They wanted to stay together and prop themselves up. They wanted to become God. They wanted to call the shots in their own life. And that's not us as believers. We should be willing to step out, even when it is fearful, because God has called us to do that. Because God is an inheritance for each one of us on earth, but I'm really ultimately in heaven. And anything we claim in the name of Spain, so to speak, for God here on earth, it's really a picture of our spiritual inheritance. It's really that we might not gain an earthly kingdom, but that we might gain a heavenly inheritance. They wanted to become God. And we see that in our world. And the more that we've wanted to become God in the West, the more we've removed God 
from our society in the West. We've removed prayer in schools, we've removed the Ten Commandments, there's now, I've seen other places, I think it's a mall or something that wants to put up the Ten Commandments, or there's a school, I forget what state it is, there's a school that a bunch of churches paid money and they're going to put up posters of the uh, Ten Commandments and stuff in the school and uh, of other Americana stuff. And it's like, good, finally, people are getting the point that we need to go back to these things. But when we remove the big G of God in our lives, in our society, it's always going to be replaced by the big G of government, whether it's ourselves trying to rule our own lives or whether we want big government. Because if we have a big God, we don't need a big government because we know a big God is going to take care of our needs, big and small. But if we don't have a God who's going to take care of us, we want a God to take care of us. And so we'll make a God of our own creation to take care of us, whether it's we make an idol and we worship it, whether it's we have a relationship and we worship it, or whether we elect someone in office who's going to give us everything that we tell us that we're going to get everything that we need and we ask for if we just put them in office. I remember hearing a clip from an Obama supporter back in the day. Like, if I support him, he's going to support me and give me all this and all this stuff I need. And it's like, no, he's not. You might say that, but you're not going to really get what you need. But they keep saying, come, let us. Come, let us. Come, guys, come together. Let us do something great together. And as they do this, the Lord comes down to see what's going on. Again, I think it's, it's God getting intimate. We see God saying, I'm not sitting up here, an absentee landlord on my throne, and just going to strike down judgment. He says, let me go down and see what they're doing. Let me walk amongst Babylon, so to speak, and see what's really going on in the heart of these people. That God wants to be intimate with people. But I think it's interesting to note that he had to come down. They hadn't reached heaven. It wasn't like they were in heaven and God said, oh, hey, how you doing? I see you're trying to get up here. Get out of heaven. He, no, God came down. And isn't that like Jesus? He came all the way down to earth to be formed a lowly person to, to walk amongst us, to see what we're up to, to be there for us. And when he had come down, he says, Indeed, the sons of men are all one in all one language. They have, they have achieved their utopia on earth. That people want a utopia today, but they had it back then. That they had all gone for one goal. And what does God say? He says, this is what they begin to do. When they're all one, when they all speak one language, and it's without me, this is what they begin to do. And I don't necessarily think that it's God being jealous here. Look, look at them. They're without me, and they're being successful. Let me destroy them. I think he sees that, hey, you know, you took the keys to my car and you're about to drive off a cliff. This is what you're about to do when you've got the keys, when you've got my stuff in your hands. You know, if my kids take my things and they go do something bad with them, like, this is what you do when I give you my stuff? But immediately they try to usurp God's authority and they make themselves up to be the Almighty. You know, it's been said that absolute power corrupts absolutely. God says that nothing they do will be held from them, that they'll be able to do whatever they want. When the world comes together and there's only one news source, there's only one government in charge, they're going to be able to do whatever they want. When there's no citizenry that own firearms to stop an errant government, the government's going to do whatever it wants. Because why not? What did you do whatever you wanted? If you could do whatever you wanted? You know, what if you had a superpower and you could be invisible? Oh, I'd go to the bank and I'd go in the vault and I'd take all the money because no one's going to catch me. You know, like, when we're able to do whatever we want, unchecked, unbridled, we're going to do whatever we want. And we're going to end up doing bad things. You see a kid who's left to his own. Uh, you know, like divorce stuff. And I was left to my own to do whatever I wanted. And I didn't have the discipline in my life. I went out and did whatever I wanted. And it wasn't good. I didn't go out and feed the homeless. I went out and took things for myself. Did things for myself. 
no matter what it costs, me or others. But make no mistake, God is bringing judgment on them here. But I don't see God's heart in this being, I can't believe they're doing this, I'm just going to strike them down again. I think it's a form of mercy. I mean, didn't we just have the flood? God's like, I just flooded the whole earth. Are we really going through this whole thing again? We're three generations from Noah, guys. Are you really starting this up again? Are you really getting in trouble again? Don't you get it? Everyone knew the flood happened. They're only three generations away. I mean, maybe they tried to whitewash history and forget about it. I think it's a form of mercy before the infection spread too far and God would ultimately have to destroy the earth again. God wasn't threatened by their actions, but he knew their actions would destroy them, so he had to to squash what they were doing. I think he was making a point that what what they were doing was destroying them spiritually and would eventually destroy them physically. You know, a lot of times we get destroyed spiritually first before we get destroyed physically. People go out and commit adultery or get involved in drugs or other things, and spiritually they're destroyed, but physically their life is still together, so to speak. It's not until later that these things take their toll on them. But again, God put an end to it because, like, didn't we just have a flood? I'm not going to judge you again right now. Come on. Let's give it a little more time this time. So what does God say? God says, come, let us. God and his, his uh, unity, God's perfect utopia of heaven, where there is no sin and there is no shame. God says, come, let us. So God says he's going to confuse their language and they can't talk to one another. He's going to put up these borders between them in language that they might be forced to spread out. They weren't going to spread out. They weren't going to be obedient. God was going to force them to be obedient, almost like uh, the Jews in the diaspora that the persecution came and they had to go out. The gospel had to be spread out from Jerusalem because they couldn't stay there anymore. But again, like I said before, if you look at the world today, we see that they were all under one language. You know, we have the internet, video conferencing, cell phones, you know, I could theoretically pick this up and talk to anyone in the world if they'd want to talk to me, you know, that we have that power. I could, you know, we don't have to sit around. We were watching a TV show the other day, and they were playing a game on the show around Thanksgiving about guessing all the states in America. Like, no one would play that anymore because you just say, okay, Google, tell me the 50 states. And Google would say, according to Wikipedia, the states are Alabama, you know, and list through them all. We, wouldn't, we have it all at our fingertips. But this is what we begin to do. We have these things. We, have, we begin to get rid of God. We begin to get rid of glo- we begin to get rid of uh, morals, uh, right and wrong. Uh, we begin to go towards globalism, towards one world government. You know, we begin to set up Nimrod's kingdom again because we think we we think we've done something with ourselves that we're so great we don't need God anymore. We've done so much, but we must know everything. And so we're shocked when we find a species of shark or fish that apparently was 50 billion years old and has been extinct but somehow it's still alive and hasn't changed one bit since you said it changed. We don't know everything, guys, and we think we do. Let's go on and try and close this out and see if this miracle will happen here. Uh, I'm going to harp on that. That's what I say. But verse 10 says, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was uh, 100 years old and begot Aphraxad two years after the flood and begot Aphraxad. Shem lived uh, 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Uh, Fraxad, uh, so on. I'm trying to skip forward. We got Eber, Selah, Eber. Uh, and 17, after we got Peleg, so again, we're seeing Peleg in this genealogy. Eber lived 430 years, and we got sons and daughters. So we're seeing more of specific uh, genealogy here with how long they lived. Well, the other ones are really more just the names. It says Peleg lived 30 years, and we got Reu, we got Reu, Peleg 200 years. Sons and daughters, Reu lived 32 years, and we got Sarah, Reu lived 200 years. Sorry, I'm just trying to get through this. Uh, let's skip down to 
24. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. And after begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years, begot sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So Shem's descendants, we see that this is where Abram comes from. This is where God's people come from, from the name. The Lord God of Shem, from his offspring, we get to Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Again, we see Peleg. This really is the family of the Ur of the Chaldeans. But again, it's all to get to Abram. God wants to get to Abram. All this other stuff, God doesn't want to focus on Nimrod. God doesn't want to focus on the world being divided. He wants to focus on God's going to do something. God's got a better plan than the world's plan. God wants to focus on the good news. But again, we're going to see this family dynamic that's formed here throughout the next chunk of Genesis. And uh, to quote from David Guzik, it says, The book of Genesis covers more than 2,000 years and more than 20 generations. Yet it spends almost a third of its text on the life of one man, Abram. That all of Genesis, all 50 chapters, a third of it is devoted to Abram. And I think God loved Abram because through Abram he'd bring his beloved people to Messiah. But also, I think, because Abram loved God. Even though he didn't have the Bible, even though he was three or four generations plus that, more than that, actually, from Noah, he loved God. He sought God. That there wasn't Israelites yet, but he would become the Israelites. And he was called the friend of God. And that's something that separates Abram in Scripture from a lot of other people, would be that he was the friend of God. He wasn't a servant, he was the friend. And I think that that's important, because that's what we see in the New Testament. We see believers are supposed to be the friends of God. And Abram wasn't perfect, we'll see that. Abram does a lot of messed up stuff, but what's, what's the main crux of his life? He's the friend of God. And I wonder, are we the friends of God? We look at God as our friend. He looks at us and wants us to be his friend, but are we friends back with him? And I, and I hope so. I think that we are in this room. I know that we all are in this room, but, man, I think we could, we could go deeper in that relationship with the Lord. Let's go on and close out this chapter. Um, 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, and Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans, again, so in Iraq and Iran in that area. Then Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took the son of Abram and his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, and his, sons, and Abraham, his son Abram's wife, excuse me. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of the, the Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. But this part we see really sort of the background of Abram, uh, he, where he got married and his brother got married. I think of uh, when Ashley and I had our first two kids. Uh, Ashley's sister and her husband had their first two kids. It was like we both got the memo for the first two, and we were wondering kind of when Alicia was coming, if there was going to be a third one over there, and it hasn't. So come on, Matt and Kim, get on board. Talk to me about Just kidding. <laughs> Our, uh, my sister and my sister-in-law have both been like, where's number four? And I'm like, you guys have two. You can't tell me that four yet. <laughs> you better catch up. Uh, but sincerely, we saw that Abraham and Sarai were here, and we see the background for Sarai that she was barren. She couldn't have children at this time. But God's laying the groundwork for the miracle he's about to do. But again, Abram was special, I believe, because he sought God. Again, like Noah found grace in the eyes of God because Noah was looking for grace in the eyes of God. The same thing with Abram here. That God works in people. People in Ur of the Chaldeans, a, a nation that is just rife with uh, 
wicked kingdoms over history, yet where does God bring his people out of? Out of this area, one man. You know, that's what it takes. It just takes you and I, even in the midst of a wicked kingdom, to be looking for God, to want to be the friend of God, for God to be able to use that. That's all God wants. He doesn't ask you to be the perfect person. He just says, come, be my friend. He doesn't ask you to have the best genealogy. He says, just look to me. Just look for grace in my eyes. You know, that God's chosen people would come yet. They weren't chosen yet. But Abraham wanted God. And I believe he was in a place to hear God. And maybe his brother and his family weren't there yet. We'll see that God calls him out of his family, and his family is not really sure, and they kind of come with him, and he waits, and he brings his nephew, and it's this whole mess kind of like Moses, you know, where we kind of drag our feet because our friends and family will come with us. And that's natural. We love our family. We love our friends. We don't want to leave them. We want them to come with us. Either if it's just for us because we're afraid to speak or whether it's we love them we want to be around them. So God understands that. But in the midst of that, Abram was the one who heard God. Abram was the one called the, the friend of God in the midst of his family. And I think we see that often in Scripture. Joseph, David, Samuel, even a little boy. He grows up and his kids don't listen to God, but, but he did. Jesus, even. His brothers didn't believe him until after the resurrection. We see the effects of the call of God on Abram's life here, his moving out, uh, the story getting set up for uh, Isaac to come. Uh, but we don't really see why yet. We just kind of see the historical uh, face here. We get into the, the spiritual and the intimate later on. Um, but again, Haran was the place he stopped prematurely with his family on the way out. They waited until uh, his father died. But I think it's interesting that we see the contrast of Nimrod, a man and a nation trying to make a name for themselves, with what God is about to do. Where uh, Nimrod does it, and it's obviously not godly, and God, a little while later, chooses Abraham to make a name uh, and a nation for himself. The Messiah would come from the Jewish people, from the offspring of Abram. My mom would tell a story of impatient Peter. This little boy who would want cookies and want it right now, right now, right now. And one time, uh, his mom said to him while he was in the other side of the house, you want a spanking right now, right now? And he thought she said cookies. And he said, right now, right now, right now, and he gets a spanking, whatever. It's a story. I don't remember exactly how it goes from his little. But I see that here, that God wants to do something. God is going to do something. But us in the flesh are like impatient Peter. We just want it right now, right now, right now, right now. Try and make it happen right now, right now. And it doesn't happen right now. I mean, I'm sure God would have had great plans for Nimrod. Nimrod had been willing to not be a Nimrod. He had been willing to let God do. You know, there's this great song um, about being the defender uh, of our heart, and it talks about all I did was worship, all I did was bow down, and all I did was wait. You know, like, not saying, like, all I did was worship, but, like, man, God, look at all you did, and all I had to do was come to you. All I had to do was wait, and you defended me. All I did was worship you, and you wash me. You know that all we have to do is just come in and sit with God and he does all the work. But as we close here, where are you and where am I in our family, in our genealogy? Where are you in your family even today, maybe even at Thanksgiving or over Christmas? Um, what is your spiritual position in the family? Do you know God? Are you the friend of God in your family or, or are you the Nimrod? And I don't think any of you are the Nimrods. You are a company you keep, and I want to keep you in company. You guys are a good company. But don't you think that God has a plan for you, just like Abram? Or don't you? I mean, honestly, do you believe that God has a plan for you? I mean, we all kind of say it, 
But I think sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we go, God can't have a plan for me. God can't use me. I'm this, I'm that, I'm from here, I'm from there. I've done this, I've done that. I don't know this, I don't know that. And God's going, you don't need to know that. Are you my friend? I have a plan for you, I love you. Wouldn't he? I mean, he had a plan for Peleg, he had a plan for Abram. Like I said, I'm sure he already did for Nimrod, but Nimrod was about his own thing. You know, I think of all the people and the talents in the world, all these musicians and athletes and people who are smart and educated and have intelligence, and they are so very gifted and so very talented, but they don't know God, and their talent is wasted. They end up dying. They end up doing tragic things. They're not beyond redemption if they're still alive, but it's like, man, like, that's all you get? That's all you're going to use that for? You know, I think like guys like Tim Tebow, who was talented, and is talented, and sought God. I'm sure that's why he got sidelined at times, because God's like, I've got better things for you. I've got better plans for you. And, and yet he's known as someone who's a friend of God. But we're in God's family now. And he has seated you in heavenly places, the Bible says, that we are kings and priests, that we are children of God. We know that. And if God loved Abraham, I'm positive that God loves you and he loves me exactly the same. If God called Abraham to go out, he's going to call you to go out. I don't know that means that you need to go find a new land you've never been to before, but maybe it does. Maybe it means he's got something totally different for you than you've ever had planned for your life. But the plans he has for your life are not the plans you have for your life. What did you say? If anyone wants to keep their life, they're going to lose it. But if anyone loses their life for my sake, they'll get their life. Like God's got a life that's better. Even if you're a believer and you're walking with the Lord today, lockstep, he's got something even greater for you. He's got a plan that's even better than you can imagine and where you're going to ask or think um, or seek. And part of that is that you don't have to be anyone else. Like we've mentioned before in other studies, that you don't have to be Billy Graham. You just have to be the you that God has made you to be. And that's great. That's great enough for him. If you never become famous, that's fine. God doesn't care about that. God just wants you to be the you that he died for you to be, to be the friend of him. You get to be that. But we have to find it out. We have to live it out. We have to be willing, ultimately, like Abraham, to see, uh, to step out. Amen? Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace that, Lord, you love us and you call us your friends. We thank you for the stories about Nimrod and Peleg and all the families and names that we can't say. They were all important enough to you and their names in the Bible. Thank you for Abram and Sarai and how you call them out and do something through them like they could never imagine, like the world had never seen and will never see again. God, I know you have that for each one of us. And God, you want to do something great that we can not imagine. Not for our glory, not to make a monument to ourselves, but God, for your glory. And to be a part of something that's part of your glory is all we want. Our name will live on for eternity. And it won't even matter because your name lives on for eternity. So God, do that. Would you do your will? Would you use us? Would you touch those around us? Would you make us your friends that in our family more might be your friends? that our families over these holidays would have opportunities to hear about you and come to know you. Bless our day. Bless uh, Calvary Church as they go out. And, uh, we ask God in Jesus' name. Amen.